Welcome to Elevate, the masterclass where we dissect the elements of exceptional achievement and lifestyle design with a focus on personal growth and real estate investing. Now, here's your host, Tyler Chesser. Elevate Nation, welcome back. This is Tyler Chesser. I'm so thankful to have you here. I'm feeling good today. You know, you got those days where some days you're a little cloudy, some days, you know, it's not the best, but I just got that feeling today. So I hope it shows up. I hope it shows up for an amazing podcast. I uh, appreciate you joining us today, and I'm absolutely blessed and grateful to be sitting with David Stein today. I hope that you're excited. I'm excited for a wide-ranging conversation with, from, uh, you know, and with an individual like David who offers so much value for so many people and who has created really so much wealth, uh, not only for himself, but for others as well, just through sharing information uh, and through being an expert, through investing in himself, investing in his own learning. So we're going to distill that today. I'm really excited about that. And I want to ask you the question that I always ask, are you ready to take it to another level? Because that's what we're going to do today. This is Elevate. Of course, you know, we sit down for mind expanding conversations with influential authorities in real estate, as well as experts in other industries and disciplines. And of course, you know, this is for leaders, entrepreneurs and real estate investors who have a burning desire for the extraordinary. It is our mission to identify and apply how the best of the best raise the bar personally and professionally to achieve greatness in real estate and beyond. Of course, we will distill the mindset, habits, routines, systems, tools, the strategies, and so much more from those who are elevating to a life without limits so that you can do the same or even more for yourself and for the people that are important to you. Of course, that's what David is doing. And so just be ready, take notes and take massive action on what you learned today, because it's going to be phenomenal. It is a masterclass for leaders and those looking to achieve uncommon results and purposeful outcomes through personal growth, real estate investing, other ventures, and most importantly, and ultimately in their lives. If you appreciate what we're doing on the show, I would certainly be grateful if you subscribe to the show, if you give us a rating or review, it means a lot to me. It means a lot to us and our team. Of course, our team is actually growing, believe it or not. We're bringing on uh, some new individuals to help us with administrative stuff on the podcast, uh, some of the marketing stuff. And so, you know, if you're enjoying the show, um, it is, of course, 100% free. We just ask that you give us a rating, a review, uh, subscribe to the show and share it with someone else because, you know, that's one of the, you know, the ways for us to grow our messages for this to organically grow. And of course, if we're giving this to you for free, we ask that your fee that you pay is just to share this with someone else. If you find value with the show, uh, we'd certainly be grateful. You know, I've built businesses um, for, you know, the, the realm of my professional life uh, through referrals and through adding value and exceeding value. And so that's my goal here uh, through Elevate. And that's our goal. That's our team's goal. So um, if you are finding value, if you are applying the principles that we've talked about on the show and you're seeing some shifts in your business and in your life, you know, give us a favor and uh, or give us a, um, a little bit of help and uh, share this with someone else. So uh, also, I will invite you to uh, check out our new website, elevatepod.com. Of course, we've got a ton of resources, uh, a ton of opportunities for you to apply. You know what we talk about on the show, because we talk about show notes, it's all on elevatepod.com. You can take a look at every single episode we've had. We've got book recommendations. We've got, you know, resources on the coaching side of things. Um, you know, you name it. I mean, we've got so much stuff there. Of course, check us out on all social media platforms, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, you name it. Of course, our Facebook community page as well. Go deeper, 
build a relationship with the tribe and expand the conversation beyond Elevate and go check us out there, Elevate Podcast Community on Facebook. And with all that said, I want to introduce you now to David Stein, who is the founder of the Money for the Rest of Us podcast uh, and Money for the Rest of Us in general. Since 2014, he has produced and hosted the Money for the Rest of Us Investing podcast. The podcast reaches tens of thousands of listeners per episode and has been nominated for six Plutus Awards. David also oversees Money for the Rest of Us Plus, the premier investment education platform that provides professional grade portfolio tools and training to help individual investors manage their own investment portfolios. He is the author of Money for the Rest of Us, 10 Questions to Master Successful Investing, which was published by McGraw-Hill. By the way, I remember McGraw-Hill back in uh, back in the day, textbooks for college and high school and all those things. So uh, obviously, David has got a lot of credibility with the McGraw-Hill publishing uh, of his book. Previously, David was an institutional investment advisor and asset manager. He was a managing partner at FEG Investment Advisors, a $15 billion investment advisory firm. At FEG, David served as a chief investment strategist and chief portfolio strategist. So uh, I want to introduce you to David, and I hope that you enjoy this wide ranging and very insightful discussion with this expert in David Stein. David, welcome to the show, sir. How are you? Hey, it's good to be here. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. No, it's a, uh, it's actually a, really a pleasure to have you. And um, tell us a little bit more about yourself behind the bio. Obviously, you've got a you know, a great public presence, and many people know you from that perspective. But, you know, what are what are some things that people don't know about you? Well, you know, I, I quit my job at, at 46, called myself retired and, and realized that um, when you use a word like retired, people end up having projects for you to do. And so I stopped <laughs> using I don't use the word retire anymore. Uh, I'm a big hiker, we like to travel. I'm a biker. We spend uh, half the year in uh, Teton Valley, Idaho, up in the mountains, and then uh, the other half of the year in Tucson, Arizona, when we're not traveling around. That's awesome. It's almost like the you're you're the guy, or you were the guy who had the truck, right? Anytime you know anybody who has a truck, it's like, all right, I need you to move this this over here, and I need you to help exactly. me move. Exactly. Need right. you to pick something up. Now you're retired. It's like, all right, wait a minute. You, I could put you to work. You got some yeah, skills exactly, here. Exactly. Exactly. That's awesome. But you know, I so I. I work about 30 hours a week still though. So I, it's, you know, retired, you know, I'll keep doing, I'm doing for, for many, many years. Cause I enjoy it. So what, what was it about uh, retiring at first that, you know, kind of drew you in and then was it just because you felt like you got trapped into doing stuff for other people that you weren't expecting that then said, Hey, you know, maybe I'll, maybe I'll find a, a better way of spending my time or what was the, what was the shift there that happened? Well, I mean, the original shift, so I was with my uh, partner's institutional advisory firm for 16 years and had ultimate freedom. I mean, I, I lived in Idaho. I didn't have a boss. I was making great money. And, but there just seemed like there, there, there could be more freedom to be had. So I, what would it be like to not to have clients calling you up or not have to go to a, a, give a speech somewhere? What would that be like? And 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 ultimately, I, you know, I quit to, to just kind of see what it would be like to go out on my own. Because for many years, you know, as an advisory team, we always said we we think this, we think that, 
I wanted to see what it would be like to just say, to say me, you know, here's what I think about investment markets right now or some other topic. And so I, I did that. It took me, you know, several years to kind of figure out my path, part of it, which was saying I was retired and realizing, no, I, I guess I'm really not retired, even though I'm not working. And, and so just it, and, and I tell people all this all the time when they quit their job, particularly if they've been at a particular organization for, you know, a decade or more, it, in some ways it's like, it is a very emotional transition and, and there's a stress area that you don't even recognize. It's a lot like a breakup of a marriage or something like that. Although this is generally happier because you're leaving a work situation, but hopefully it's happier. But it takes time to adjust and realize, all right, here's what I, I liked about that former situation. Here's what I miss about it. How can I create something that that has the elements I still like while not including those that I didn't like as much? Well, what was the you know most useful mindset shift that you experienced through that process? Obviously, you had to shed some former sort of constructions of yourself to become this new version of yourself. But what else did you have to shift as far as your mindset? Just to be patient and realize it, it's going to take time that you know, with anything, I mean, you can't build a presence. I mean, I had no presence outside of the institution, institutional investment world when I quit. And it takes time. I probably started and shut down four or five different websites, different businesses. And realize, and, and I'd, I'd launch something. I'd be all excited about making it, launching it. And then I'd launch it. And I was like, oh, shoot, I hope nobody wants to actually hire me because I really don't want to do this. I mean, I like building. And so it just, it just, it's just taking months and a couple of years to figure out, all right, this is me outside of my former corporate role. And, and here's what that me wants to do now that I have all this freedom and how do I balance how much I want to work versus leisure and, and uh, how much travel versus staying home. And, and it just, it takes experimenting and it takes time. This episode of Elevate is brought to you by CF Capital, a real estate investment firm that focuses on acquiring and operating multifamily assets that provide stable cash flow, capital appreciation, and a margin of safety. Our team, including yours truly, leverages its expertise in acquisitions and management to provide investors with superior risk-adjusted returns while placing a premium on preserving capital. Our mission is to provide property investment and asset management solutions to help investors maximize their returns by investing in high-value multifamily communities. To learn more about future opportunities, visit cfcapllc.com. Again, that's cfcapllc.com. So you almost went from, you know, having sort of a, a, a deep foundation within the firm that you were working then to shifting towards what's going to serve me, right? What's going to serve, you know, my own outcomes and what's the lifestyle that I'm going to design, which is, you know, we're really about that on the show is it's about lifestyle design through creating vehicles that serve you, right? Whether it's real estate, whether it's other investment vehicles, as well as investing in your own personal growth understanding and obtain, you know, optimizing and maximizing your own mindset and your own sort of the way that you show up as a leader of yourself and of other people. But, you know, talk to me about that, uh, that whole shift for you, you know, what were some painful things and some things that you learned that you uh, didn't expect to learn through that process? That's a good question. I, I you know, as I, as I think back is I, I just I go back to it, it just takes time. So, you know, I learned that, for example, I don't like to manage money. 
like I don't like the stress of actually pulling the trigger on other people's investments. And so when I launched a, a membership site, it, it was all education. And then eventually members were like, well, I want to model portfolio. I mean, give me some portfolio examples. And you realize, okay, that's not quite like money management, but it's still, you know, you're providing some recommendations in the form of general education. And so part of it is, is you'll get feedback from clients or, or people that you interact with that says, you know, you should do this or, and then you have to decide, well, maybe I can do this, or maybe I'm willing to do this. And so over time, you know, what I've been willing to provide in the investment space is more than what, you know, I was originally willing to do, you know, six, seven years ago when I, when I launched my site. And so it's an iterative process and you realize that it just takes time and it's that interaction with the marketplace, with what you build and getting that feedback. And then, you know, just because you get feedback doesn't mean you have to do it. And then you can decide, okay, I actually want to do this. I'm willing to do this and to be a service to my community. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's uh, really an important distinction, you know, as an entrepreneur myself, and I know many people listening, they've experienced those failures or perhaps market feedbacks that have allowed them to pivot. Perhaps it's a, there's a silver lining in these failures, which gives you an opportunity to do something perhaps that's more in alignment, not only with your future, but also what the market wants. And, you know, I think it's important to take that feedback and apply that to your business or maybe take a different direction, right? If you have a failure, it's not the end. It's just about how do you react? So uh, tell me, you know, from a from an investment philosophy standpoint, um, if you were to talk to your younger self today, looking back, you know, what would you tell yourself about developing an investment philosophy? You know, obviously, you've seen different cycles throughout the years. And you know, what's the best approach, uh, you know, to really start towards building a, an effective long-term investment philosophy? Well, I would tell myself to focus on asset classes. So an, an asset class is it's a basket of securities with similar characteristics. So an asset class would be U.S. large company stocks or non-U.S. stocks or real estate investment trust. So often, and I, I was the same way. I mean, I studied finance in school. And well, if I'm going to, if I'm going to do investing, I want to start researching options like stock options or individual stocks. So I started researching all these companies and I spent well over a decade interviewing, do, conducting due diligence on some of the top hedge fund managers in the world and, and equity managers. And you realize that one, it's extremely competitive. And as an individual investor, I, I'm not going to get some type of informational edge to identify that a stock is mispriced because, because that's what you do. When you're buying a stock, somebody sold it to you and that stock reflects the consensus expectations of the market, what they, they, how fast that company will grow. Tesla, for example, a lot of people wanna buy Tesla. Well, great, buy Tesla, but if you buy Tesla, the only way Tesla is gonna do well is if it does better than what everybody already expects it to do. And, and I, you know, I spent a lot of time doing that, trying to find individual stocks and you realize, no, it's way more interesting just to buy baskets of asset classes and enter them when they're attractive, when everybody's fearful and panicking. And that's how I, I started investing institutionally. It's how I managed assets. But I, I would have saved you know, some time if I just focused on that in the beginning, as opposed to diving down and trying to trade options or trying to pick individual stocks and outperform that way. Yeah, I think that's important. And, you know, as a, as a real estate guy, I look at the stock market sometimes and I say, 
how do people make sense of this? It seems so speculative. And of course, as you mentioned, you know, there's, there's many, you know, highly professional uh, individuals operating in that space that have so much more of an information advantage than you do. So I think that's really helpful to start from that position of, all right, let's identify the asset, you know, classes and look at the buckets and identify where are we in the, you know, macro or micro market cycle and make decisions based on that. But it still seems perhaps, and maybe this is some ignorance from my side, my side of things is that there's still quite a bit of speculation going on there. But could you talk to me about a little bit of perhaps maybe what the strategy is behind, behind, you know, you, you talked about the philosophy of identifying the baskets and the asset classes. Now, what does your strategy look like from there? And what do you recommend to to your clients? Well, what I what I focus on is is what I call return drivers. So, you know, over long periods, what is it that drives a particular asset type? Let's say real estate. I mean, it's driven by cash flow. You know, what's what's the dividend? What's the rent? What's the income? It's driven by how that cash flow is growing over time. So the growth rate, and it's driven by the price that investors are paying for that cash flow, be it a price to earnings ratio for stocks, be it a a cap rate for a private real estate opportunity. And those three things work together. So when I'm trying to identify an asset class, I'm very cognizant of well, what is its income? What's its cash flow? What's its yield? And, and to what extent is that cash flow growing? And what are investors paying for that? Are they overly optimistic? You know, private real estate right now, and it's been this way for a number of years, the cap rates are, are extremely low. And you know, so low that you know, I it's not an asset class that I'm necessarily comfortable investing in because I remember when you could pick up properties, you know, where the cap rate was was double digits before leverage. And, and now, you know, they're selling for four to you know, four to five percent type cap rate. And you now obviously that there's some some opportunities out there, but you have to search far and wide for them. And I and I'm tend to be a lazy investor, so I'd rather focus on things that I don't have to do too much due diligence on focus on asset classes, focus on looking at where people are, are panicking and take advantage of that. And that's how I invest. Are you seeing a disconnect in cap rates in the private real estate market versus real estate investment trust market? You have. Uh, the The public REIT market has, has sold off way more than private real estate. And, you know, it remains to be seen based on how COVID plays out, whether you'll see private real estate valuations drop, it, you know, what, what's supporting it is very, very low interest rates. And so, I mean, there, there's a case to be made when you look at the cap rates on private real estate versus, you know, bond, bond yields. But at this point, there, there is a disconnect. So public REITs are more attractively priced than private real estate opportunities right now. Yeah, and we're absolutely seeing, you know, highly compressed cap rates in the private real estate market uh, from our vantage point. And I know many of our listeners and, and partners are as well. So it is obviously extremely challenging to locate opportunities that make sense. And obviously with a rapidly changing environment, in, in addition to a higher sort of level of distress in the marketplace, it's really interesting with all of those components sort of merging together, making sense of the marketplace can be challenging. But you know, talk, talk to me about that in terms of your vantage point. Obviously, you deal with many different asset classes, but from a high level, I mean, how are you making sense of the current market and, and what sort of steps are you taking, you know, from a capital, you know, preservation as well as a growth uh, perspective? 
Well, you know, the way that I invest is, is very much focused on capital preservation. So my, my overall stock exposure, like common stocks, is less than 10%. I, but I have, I use what's called an asset garden approach. So I, I just want a variety of asset types, just like a, you have a flower garden, you have a variety of flowers, different types, different roles. And so I have a, you know, well over a dozen asset classes from preferred stock to private capital or I'm in venture capital, leveraged buyouts, I'm in real estate investment partnerships. I don't own any direct private real estate right now, but I have, because I have found doing direct lending way more profitable. So I, I have lent and hold the mortgage on, on a 12 plex apartment building where you know, the interest rates at six and a half percent because what you're seeing, and I don't know if you're seeing this or not, but a lot of people want to buy real estate through their IRA. And banks, there, there are very few banks that are willing to lend to an IRA because they can't get a personal guarantee. And so the interest rates are, are very elevated. And so I'm willing to lend on that because, you know, if they put 50% down, it, uh, it's a very, very attractive yield. I mean, higher than the cap rate on the building, you can get more on, the, on lending to it. And so the, the, the reality is you can't get the timing perfect. I, I go back to... You know, when I look at a given asset class, what's what's its cash flow or income stream? How is it growing? And and what's the valuation placed on those cash flows? And then just have a lot of diversification. And from a macro standpoint, I, you know, I'm finally on our site, we went back to neutral after being, you know, it, really bearish for the past couple of years, uh, because you're finally seeing corporate profits turn around you're, you're with the potential for the vaccine. I mean, you have more of a tailwind now than, than we've had in some time. And so that, that makes me more positive. So when I think about your, just some of the comments that you made regarding private real estate, and, and I know that we're talking about the garden, right, in general, and we've got many different sort of approaches to the portfolio. But when you think of, uh, you, you mentioned you found direct lending to private real estate to be more profitable. I'm assuming you're you're talking about with with sort of in conjunction with the level of risk that you're taking because wouldn't you agree that a leveraged acquisition of a real estate you know asset would be more profitable than a six and a half percent sort of you know return on a on a debt? Uh, well, yeah, approach? but uh, I don't have any debt, so yeah. If you leverage, I mean, we talk about return drivers. Leverage is one return driver, and you know, individuals sometimes uh, confuse, and I'm sure your audience doesn't, but they, they confuse, you know, what's the return before leverage? And then look at, and, and what's the, the margin of safety before that? But no, I, I mean, in this environment, no, I'm not comfortable leveraging up a 4% cap rate building because real estate takes work. And, you know, you can get the management team to help, but I'd rather take unlevered at 6.5%. Or, you know, or I have a 50% equity position and I don't have to do anything except cash the check and then go, go find other asset classes that are more attractive on an unlevered basis and go from there. But again, it, it depends on your perspective. I, I tend to like paper assets where I don't have to, to do a lot of work. You know, I own unlevered land. I mean, so we do own that and, and gold cryptocurrencies but it's it's a variety but you know private real estate while i've done it uh you know we we converted a we did a lot of borrowing or a 
real estate in a, a, a college town. You know, we've we've bought private homes, we've converted them to triplexes. I thought about holding them, and it's like, well, geez, the valuations are so high. I'll just sell the thing and not worry about trying to rent it out. I love it. All right. Well, I'm not gonna. I can't let you go without talking about uh, cryptocurrencies and what what you're seeing there because I'm I'm intrigued. I mean, I I, I find uh, you know I, I never want to invest in something that I don't know much about. But obviously, there's uh, there's a lot of uh, talk about cryptocurrency. So, what's your perspective? Uh, to that asset class well first off it's pure speculation it's it's a it, it's a form of digital gold so it you know bitcoin has some definite advantages over gold in that it's way more portable it uh its market cap is is much less but it also has a much younger history so if people continue to hold bitcoin because they trust it and they want something of value where there's a limited supply because there is a limited supply of Bitcoin, then it'll do well. So, you know, I have about three, three percent of my portfolio in cryptocurrencies, you know, as a pure speculation. And, and I've had them had them for well over five years. And, you know, occasionally if it sells off, I'll add. But it, you know, it shouldn't be a big portion of someone's portfolio because you, we have no idea if people lose trust in Bitcoin, then it's worthless. But then again, you know, other Fiat currencies are worthless too. I mean, they're, they're all all currency is based on trust, and and trust in the system. And cryptocurrency and gold, those are monetary assets that you know don't have the same institutional trust baggage that you know the dollar does or the euro. And so that's why there's some advantages to them. You know, gold, it's been around for for millennia, and people have believed it has value. But it, you know it in and of itself, it's worthless. There's no institutional commercial use for gold. It just sits there, but people have valued it for years. And so having, you know, diversifying your source of monetary assets to where it's not just dollar-based assets, but other assets make, other currencies make sense to me. And I would imagine that you've got some thought, you know, to what's going on in terms of uh, you know, money injection or dollar injection? I mean, what, what's your crystal ball telling you over the next few years? I mean, is the dollar going to become irrelevant uh, at some point? You know, are they going to print themselves into oblivion or what, what's your what's your take on that? No, no, it'll, it'll be decades because, you know, the dollar remains the reserve currency. The vast majority of international transactions in the dollar, international tradings in the dollar, we have the U.S. has the biggest and deepest capital markets and people, you know, there's a huge amount of dollar borrowing outside of the U.S. And so unless that changes, it, there, there isn't any viable replacement for the role the dollar serves. And, you know, the dollar has always grown, the, the, the money supply. The primary, it isn't government spending money. The primary driver of, of growth in the dollar is bank lending. When banks make loans, that creates new dollars. And 90% of the money supply is, is from, from banks lending dollars. And, and through that process, the accounting of making a loan creates new dollars and new purchasing power. And, and that's been going on for, for decades and it'll continue to go, which means we'll, we'll continue to have inflation, but we're not in a situation where inflation is out of control unless there's so much dollars created that we get a capacity constraint. And that's what pushes up prices. 
where people start to fear inflation and they change their behavior and they start hoarding. That can push up pricing, but prices, but we're not. I don't see anything on the horizon that suggests that's imminent. So you don't think that in the near future that um, the dollar will be replaced um, by another currency as the reserve currency of the world? No, because nobody, it's not like the people make that choice based on the individual decision. I mean, there is no body that nominates a currency, the reserve currency. It's based on the actions people take, that they want to own dollars, that central banks want to hold dollars, and they like the ability to borrow from the Federal Reserve when there's a financial crisis, like they did this year through swap agreements. Or you'll, I mean, you might see less in the dollar, but you're not going to see suddenly the euro take over because that's not the way people are, are, are behaving, businesses. I mean, they continue to want to transact in the dollar because once you have it, there's somewhere you can invest it very easily. It's a very, very deep market. And there's nothing even close to replacing it at this point. So let's talk a little bit more about REITs because most of our listeners are real estate entrepreneurs and obviously highly invested in, in active real estate or syndications or funds. So talk to me a little bit more about REITs. What are you seeing as some of the best opportunities in the real estate investment trust landscape? Well, first off, you have to recognize there's two types of REITs. So there's equity REITs, which own rent producing commercial properties, and there's mortgage REITs, which are a completely different animal. It's basically a highly leveraged investment in mortgage-backed securities or bonds backed by uh, residential home mortgages. So on, on the residential or on the equity REIT side, you know, one of the things people don't realize is that an advantage of REITs is their flexibility. So people think, oh man, REITs got killed in the sell-off and nobody's going to go back to the office again. And and that's going to kill the asset class. Well, you know, REITs don't have static portfolios. They can adjust their portfolio. They can reposition their portfolio. They can buy different opportunities. They can sell underperforming assets. They can buy better assets. The, only about 25% of the REIT market are, are cyclical. So shopping centers and offices. The majority of it, 40%, or so are, are more stable. It's healthcare, it's cell towers, it's self-storage, it's industrial buildings. So it's a huge array of, of property types, many of which as individuals, we don't, we don't ever get exposure to. We don't have the opportunity to invest. And so it's a very, very diversified play. It tends to underperform private real estate simply because it's less levered. The average REIT's about 30% leverage compared to, you know, many real estate deals are 70%. So if you're just comparing the raw returns, you know, REITs, you know, don't look as competitive. But as a passive way to hold a diversified portfolio of properties and that, that you know, passive in terms of, let's say, an ETF, but recognizing there's REITs under there that are actively managing their property pool, seeking to upgrade it, looking for opportunities, and they're just as competitive and knowledgeable as you know, institutional private real estate firms. The only difference is they tend to use less, less leverage and the majority of their cash flow gets paid out to shareholders in dividends and, and they're much less, much more liquid than private real estate opportunities. 
Yeah. And obviously most of the REITs are some of the most well-located assets in the world and, you know, some of the highest quality assets. And for the most part, you're looking at, you know, class A, best of the best, you know, towers and, you know, multifamily properties and office properties, industrial properties, you know, so on and so forth from every different asset class, commercial real estate, in addition to uh, residential. And you talked about even uh, some of the debt sort of options as well. So I think there's there's a lot there, but is there anything else that you'd point to uh, for folks who are, you know, looking to further diversify their real estate holdings into perhaps REITs? Is there anything else that you'd suggest to them as they're becoming more and more educated? Well, I, I on my website, moneyfortherestofus.com, I have two comprehensive guides, one on equity REIT investing, the other on mortgage REIT investing, and it includes, you know, what to look for for valuations and, and how to go about that. So that would be one resource, you know, REIT REIT.com is another resource. They have all kinds of data on investing in REITs. And so those, those are two sources to kind of to get up to speed on, on the asset class. Well, we're excited uh, because soon uh, we're in the works of getting uh, the man, the myth, the legend, Sam Zell on the show to talk more about REITs because he's one of the godfathers of the industry. So uh, looking forward to that. But thank you for for that information. I think it's super important for folks to get educated and see the options there, right? And 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 locate, you know, what works for you, right? Because everybody's different. Everybody's investment portfolio is mm -hmm. different. And so one thing I'd love to know from you, David, is, you know, something that obviously with you having such an influence on so many different investors, is there something that you would point to maybe from a high level uh, that you would, would say is sort of the mindset of the most effective investors over a long period of time? I mean, obviously, you've got to manage your emotions, you know, you can't just zoom in and say, well, you know, this month or this quarter has been awful, or it's been great. I mean, what else would you point to in terms of the mindset of the most effective investors that you know? Well, they have a discipline. So they have a specific investment process that they go through. And, you know, some type of framework that helps them make their decisions. So it allows them to control their emotion. And, and if you look, you know, investors such as Howard Marks, I mean, he sent, he's done multiple memos on on his particular framework or or other investors have specific ways to do that and 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 I think that's the key I mean I I last year I wrote a book really addressing this you know the 10 questions that investors should ask before they invest in any asset class and and you know I wrote that because what you often find is individual investors they just go they chase the next shiny thing be it cryptocurrency or gold or or real estate and they don't really have a framework for deciding, okay, this is actually the asset class that I should invest in. And, and you mentioned with cryptocurrencies, you know, you, you mentioned, essentially mentioned one of the questions, you know, what is it to be able to explain what the investment is to understand it? You'd be surprised how many people invest and they don't really understand how cryptocurrencies work or what a blockchain is. If we can't explain an investment to somebody else, a friend or family member, in a way that they can understand it, then we shouldn't invest because that process of doing that, it humbles us. And so the best investors I know, you know, they're not great investors because they can accurately predict the future because most cannot. The, the best are they're asset class focused and they have a framework and discipline that they go through before they make an investment. All right. So uh, you got the 10 questions. We know one of them. So walk us through the the other nine, or maybe are you giving us a cliffhanger here to go look at the book, or what? What's oh no, the... <laughs> I mean I, I'll talk about um, you know some other examples. You know the questions is it question two is it investing, speculating, or gambling? 
you know, an investing investment is something that has a positive expected return. So it has the cash flow, it has the cash flow growth. A speculation is something like gold or cryptocurrency, where there's some disagreement on what the return will be. And a gamble is something with a negative expected return and should be done for entertainment. Now, some of the other questions are what's the upside? So, so understand the return drivers and, and what has to happen for that particular investment to generate a positive return. You know, the risk, you know, the downside is another thing to be able to answer. Who's on the other side of the trade is a very important question, understanding who you're trading with. You know, a stock market, as I mentioned, it's an auction market. You know, what does that seller know that you don't? We do the same thing with real estate. What does the seller know that you don't? Understand what their motivation is. So we need to be, on, on, be able to answer who's on the other side of this trade. And, and what does it take to be successful? You know, is this portfolio, is this investment dependent on accurately predicting the future or outsmarting the market? Now, those type of investments, I tend to, to stay clear of. I want investments that have a return driver that can be dependable, you know, be it that cash flow. And, you know, there's something underlying, there's a tailwind to generate that cash flow. And, you know, some of the other ones are on the fees, the expenses, and how does it impact your portfolio? And so those those are you know those are the ten and you know the books that is called money for the rest of us, ten questions to master successful investing, but the idea is to have a framework and a discipline. Maybe at these questions or others that you go through in order to to make successful investments. No, that's great, and we'll put a link in the show notes to the book so folks can check that out and uh, dive deeper into these ten questions. But thank you for illustrating that because I think they're all extremely important and, and extremely poignant. I've got um, one thought, uh, you know, an investor that I really admire, of course, many would as well as Charlie Munger, you know, I read his book, uh, poor, Char poor Charlie's Almanac a few years ago, and I found it to be highly illuminating. One thing that uh, he mentioned in the book, you know, and, and really is kind of the theme of it is being multidisciplinary and being a deep learner. One thing that I, I love about you and something that you put on your website is your list of books that you've read over the past few years. And, you know, it just shows how you're such a learner, you're committed to continuing to grow your knowledge, your wisdom and, and challenge your own beliefs. So talk to me about your multidisciplinary learning approach, and uh, sort of what role that that plays for you. Well, it's something that I've always done as a, as a professional investor, I spent a lot of time on planes. So I mean, I read a lot. Uh, anything, you know, I read investment finance books, but tend to prefer, you know, I'll read novels, I'll read other nonfiction, whatever, you know, sparks my interest. And, and I continue to do that because I, I have to produce a podcast every week and, and I don't do interviews, so it's a solo show. So I need to come up with 20, 20, 25 minutes of materials. So that, that propels me to, you know, want to read, but it, you know, whatever happens to the, it has to be something that that I'm interested in because the last, you know, one of the, and I, I learned this about publishing a book is, you know, people, they don't want a book. They don't want to be recommended a book and they don't really want to be given a book because then it's just this weight that they have <laughs> like, oh shoot, I have to read another book or add it to my list. And so, you know, when I, you know, for that reason, I don't necessarily, you know, I'm not giving away books to people because I don't want to put this albatross on their back that they feel <laughs> like they now have to read this book. And I'm the same way. So I'll, you know, I start a lot of books. I don't finish. You know, there's a lot that I don't finish. It has to earn the right to continue to be read. It's got to be good enough. And, you know, so, you know, I'll finish 
20, probably 20 books a year. And I'll probably start, you know, twice that many, 40, 50 books a year. And if they just, I lose interest. Is there anything that you'd point to that, you know, earns you, earns the right for you to finish? Or is it obviously it's a case by case basis or is it a case by case? I mean, it's just gotta, I can't get bored. I get bored really easily. (laughs) So if it, you know, it, if they're telling the same stories uh, or that, you know, you've heard before, you know, they tell us Starbucks or, I mean, just to all, you know, the hero's journey, like it's almost like people write a book and they discover that, Oh, I've heard of their hero's journey. Like this is new <laughs> Like No, it's in like every, it's in a lot of books. So if it, it's gotta be something unique or unique perspective or, or well-crafted and a lot of books get rushed out. You know, there's a reason the best books out there, you know, novelists, they only come out with a book every five years because it takes a long time to write a really, really good book. For sure. You can write a book in a month, but that's not, doesn't mean you could call it a book, but that doesn't mean it's very good. So it, it's got to be, it's got to capture my interest. It has to be well-written. And, you know, sometimes I just, I just get bored and it isn't, it isn't the author's fault. It's just, you know, I just want, I, you know, I wasn't ready for the book. Hey guys, I just wanted to take a brief time out from the show, this incredibly mind expanding discussion to speak to the high achievers, the high performers. I wanted to speak to those who have a burning desire to go to the next level and beyond. First of all, I hear you and I see you. When I got started as a real estate entrepreneur, fresh out of my W2 corporate job, I was excited and jubilant to create and design my future. At the same time, my business and life was filled with confusion, filled with fear, doubt, uncertainty, and to be honest with you, sometimes even sleepless nights and hopelessness even while experiencing what many would have considered substantial success. Ultimately, I mustered up the courage to hire one of the world's top high-performance business coaches to work directly with me on creating strategies, systems, and profound shifts towards accelerating my multifaceted performance and to become an industry leader. After years of investing significant resources into myself and in my business through this process, I am now paying it forward as a high-performance coach to those who feel called to elevate to the extraordinary. Wherever you are right now, you know deep down that you have it within you to be great. If you're someone who's seriously looking to elevate your business, your real estate portfolio, your cash flow, your deal flow, your network, your net worth, your lifestyle, and ultimately your life right now and ongoing for the rest of your life, I have a message for you. Because if that's you, then I invite you to visit coachwithtyler.com. I have limited coaching spots available to guide people like you who want to substantially close the gap from where you are to where you want to be. These are first come first serve and demand high touch one to one focus from me directly to you. And this is not for everyone. This is only for those who are decisive, committed, and willing to do whatever it takes. It's only for those willing to play full out and invest time, energy and resources into themselves to achieve greatness in real estate investing and beyond which is what we're all about on this podcast. This is for those defiantly inspired for transforming as an empowered, limitless and unstoppable human being in full control of their and their business's future. If that is you, I invite you to visit coachwithtyler.com. Again, that's coachwithtyler.com where you can apply for this life changing opportunity. We will then schedule a discovery session where we will directly discuss what's working, not working and how we can work together to accelerate your future. With that said, enjoy the rest of the show. 
yeah, maybe it's just not capturing you at the right time. But right. one thing that I, I really enjoy about people like yourself who are constant learners and curious is that they're humble. They show up with a, a, a level of humility that says, hey, I don't know everything. I'm willing to learn something new. But is there anything that you would point to that you have changed your mind about recently just through through your learning? Oh, I change my mind all the time so much so I don't, I probably don't. Um, That's great, don't by the way. remember a specific <laughs> instance just because you don't know. And the you know, great investors, they realize they don't know. I mean, we know most of what we don't know. And that's why, you know, I like rules of thumbs. I like principles to follow. And, you know, one of the reasons I'm much happier, you know, not being a professional money manager is there's this, this, Aura around money managers that they can predict the future. And, and I don't like, I can't, so I don't want to, I don't want to be paid for doing so. And when I left, you know, I spend way more time focusing on, okay, how do we manage investments knowing we can't predict the future, but many people actually think they do and they act on that. And that's, that's a really, and I call it the, you know, at the time when I was writing about this about 10 years ago, I called it a terrifying question. Like what, what, you know, what if we invest in the world, everybody thinks they know what's going to happen, but really nobody does. And, and that's a different perspective in terms of how to invest. And that's what led me back to asset classes, cash flow, cash flow growth, dependable return drivers, you know, understanding what it will take to be successful. And it's one reason I don't, you know, I don't like a lot of leverage. In fact, you know, we're, we have, we, we buy and sell a lot of houses as we, we do some remodeling. Now I'm applying for a mortgage for the first time in probably 12 years. Cause just because one, I want to see if I can get a mortgage, which turns out to be incredibly difficult if you're self-employed <laughs> and, uh, and two, but I don't like a lot of leverage, but you know, with rates this low, it's like, well, let, let me try again and see, maybe I'll figure out a way that can, I can earn more than, you know, whatever the, the mortgage rate is after tax and invest. No, that's great. And I just wanted to highlight, you know, I love the fact that you're like, man, I changed my mind all the time. Uh, because you know what, there's so many people, there's a lot of people who say, well, no, I haven't changed my mind on anything recently. And I find myself to just change my mind constantly. And perhaps, you know, the the new level of information or changing conditions and whatever it may be, you know, whether it's, you know, the mood of the public, you know, you're talking about, I know the way that other people will behave if I study it. And I can bet on that to a certain degree, I can't predict the future. But it's interesting to look at psychology and understand sort of human behavior, and also looking at the controllables of the assets that you're investing in. I find that to be just a fascinating concept, sort of all married together. So I, I just appreciate that. But is there anything else that you'd point out on that? No, but I, you know, I approach the politics the same way. So, you know, on my podcast, it's not, you know, we'll discuss economic policies. We'll, we'll look at, you know, what Trump is doing or what a Biden administration might do, but it's not done from a political perspective. Cause if you spend enough time with people that believe one way or the other, you realize that, that those are deeply held feelings and you know and whatever logic they came up with like i'm not going to convince them otherwise <laughs> and so i'd rather focuses on well here's the potential economic consequences of this policy or of people behaving this way but not you know never approach it from you know i'm going to learn so i can convince somebody different i'd rather just you know here's here's my thought for the moment here's how i see what's going on is stay humble as you mentioned 
and we'll see how things evolved because in, invariably we're going to be surprised. And, and that's a constant with investing. It's, it's the, this, the endless stream of surprises that we just didn't think about. I mean, even 2020, like who would have thought that, you know, here it is November and, you know, I haven't sat inside a restaurant. I've been on a plane since March. I mean, and then it's a very different world than it was a year ago. Yet it's been a great year, you know, from a personal standpoint. I mean, obviously many people are struggling, but, you know, it's tests like this that you really see people become creative and, and figure things out and, and get by. I was the other day, I, I've noticed we've just been back in Arizona and I've noticed all these trucks, you know, packed with bicycles. And I said, well, what's, where, where are all these bikes coming from? And you realize that, well, they're, they're taking them to LA or cities where there's a bike shortage, they're redoing them. And so they've taken advantage of because the jump in use bicycle prices because you know, there's an 80% year over year increase in new bicycle sales and there's a shortage. People adapt. And that's what's so fascinating about the economy and real estate. I mean, real estate is gonna adapt. REITs will adapt. Private real estate investors will adapt and we'll see how it plays out. Yeah, change is the only constant. And uh, when we see change, it's about how do we react, right? It's not it's not always, you know, a negative, but there's always a positive hidden there if you look for it. So no, there's a lot of value in that. And uh, I want to transition into our rapid fire section, we call it the rare air questionnaire. It's about being uncommon. It's about pushing the limits. It's about updating your knowledge. And it's about being ready to adapt exactly what we've been talking about thus far. So obviously, as being so well read and, and uh, you know, obviously an author yourself, I, I'd be remiss to ask you, if I didn't ask you, you know, the top two or three most impactful books that you've read over the past few years, if you had to point to those, what would those be? Uh, I'll start with a book back, you know, it's been more, it's probably 2000, it came out, it's called Soloing by Harriet Rubin. And you know, she, I, was, I was working you know, with my investment advisory firm. I'd only been there probably six years. And she opened, I remember taking it on a plane to Mexico with my son and reading it for a week or so. And it really opened my eyes to, hey, I could actually do what I do on my own and not have to be part of a team. And, and the idea of doing projects for people. And you know, that, was very, that was very enlightening. Uh, a book I, I really enjoy also is called The Unknown Craftsman. It's by Suetsu Yanagi. He is a, he writes, it's about the book about pottery and I don't, I don't do pottery, but really it's about aesthetic beauty, you know, what makes something beautiful. And it's, you know, I like the book because it's just, it's completely different. And, you know, it's, you know, he's Japanese and, and I've, I've been to Japan three or four times. It's an area that I, I love going. So I like that. And then, you know, I read scripture daily as part of my meditation, you know, the Bible, Book of Mormon and other, you know, scriptures. So that those are also very influential and influential in what I do. Aside from our discussion today, what are the, what's the biggest way that you elevate your life on a daily basis? Uh, probably, you know, I meditate daily. I take, you know, a morning walk daily. I, I pray, you know, I study scripture and, and just, you know, start the day right. I mean, I, you know, back when I was in high school, I was following you know, Stephen Covey and he talked about sharpening the saw, you know, and it, now it seems like a cliche because he's so dang popular, even though he's passed on. But at the time that was eye-opening, like 
sharpen your saw, make sure your blades are sharp. Spend some time each morning, you know, what he calls a private victory, where, you know, you set your day right, and then you can go out and, and have public victories in, in the arena, be it business, education, or whatever your, your public sphere is. I love that. I love that. What's the uh, biggest way that you elevate others around you? Serve them. So, I mean, in business is service, you know, living is service. You know, I often think, you know, what we do for our job, you know, it's like having a role in a play. I mean, this is, this is my role, you know, in my life. And the reason I have this role is, is because I get to interact with others, like on an individual basis. And being had, you know, it's, it's way more fun to help somebody individually than to write a check to a charity because you can, you can see it in their eyes. And so we're always looking for ways like, who can we help today? And, and even if it's, you know, smiling at them or, you know, giving a, you know, a bigger tip at, you know, at a restaurant or something like that, anything we can do just to help people out. Well, you've been a great service to us today, and I really appreciate uh, you sharing so much wisdom with Elevate Nation today. It's an absolute pleasure to have you here, as I mentioned early in the show, but uh, tell the listeners how they can uh, learn more about what you do. Sure. So uh, my website's moneyfortherestofus.com. So that's where you'll find the podcast, the membership community, the book, and, and anything else I have to be doing. Yeah, we'll put a link in the show notes there to the website, to the podcast, and uh, everything that David's all about. So uh, rest assured that will be there. Check out elevatepod.com for all of that. And I want to encourage you to share this with someone else. You know, who else do you know that could really benefit from listening to this conversation, taking action on this conversation? Because there's so much wisdom here. There's so much to apply. And what were your top three key distinctions? I always ask this question for a reason, because you have to distill back and say, hey, you know, if I'm if I'm learning and listening, you know, what am I taking action on? And so distill this down to what are your top three key distinctions? So I would encourage you to do that, share this with someone else and actually become the teacher, because we all know that the teacher really in many in many ways learns the most. So share this with someone else. And also take action, because this is the most important part. If you don't take action on what you learn. There is no power in just knowledge. Knowledge is not power. The real power is in taking action, applying, and being willing to be adaptable because look, things are going to continue to change. Uh, but those who are adaptable are those who rise to the occasion. So with all that said, David, I just want to thank you again for being on the show. Great. Thanks for having me. Elevate Nation. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to Elevate. If you enjoy this episode, be sure to rate, review, subscribe, and pay it forward by sharing with a friend. Most importantly, take this opportunity to elevate your results by taking immediate action on what you learned. For more, visit elevatepod.com.